Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. of Connecticut. Good old Chris Murphy is a good politician and he understands the law because he's very intelligent. Yeah, Chris Murphy That, of course, is from the new John Ashcroft album. And that's Trent Lott on piano. He has kind of a signature style that you can pick up there. Uh, I don't like it as much as I like Let the Eagle Soar, but uh, it certainly fits our guest today. Uh, here in the first segment of The Scramble, we're going to talk to Chris Murphy, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, that is, or as we like to call him, Walkin' Chris Murphy. He is traversing Connecticut, as he has done uh, before, on foot, uh, and uh, this gives us a chance to talk to him, gives him a chance to talk to his constituents, um, and gives us a great excuse to visit with him right now. Um, by the way, if you have a better song about Chris Murphy or you'd like to write a better song about Chris Murphy, especially the walking aspect of Chris Murphy, uh, write it, record it, send it to Kyone Wolf at cwolf at wnpr.org. I just delegated that. Um, and it should mention blister prevention somewhere. But there's a lot of things that rhyme with blister, so you should be fine. Uh, Chris Murphy, welcome to our conversation. I've uh, I've taken some, some voice lessons since I recorded that album, so the next edition will be a little bit more uh, palatable. It'll be number one with a bullet. There's no question about that. So um, we'll, we'll get to Charlottesville and we'll get to North Korea in, in just a second. But as you're in the early stages of walking across the state of Connecticut, um, putting those two on the back burner, is there something else that people are talking to you about? Are there other things that are, are on people's minds as you encounter them? So here's what breaks through. Uh, it, it, you know, people, um, you know, have not been talking to me about the issues that are sort of front of lobe on the cable news show. Charlottesville's the exception. But, um, you know, the issues that people talk to me about as I'm walking across the state are evergreen issues. Uh, people are talking about taxes. They're talking about wages. A lot of people um, yesterday and today are talking about schools. Now, that's probably because school is coming up, but it's also because out here in eastern Connecticut, there's been a decline in the school-age population, and there's all sorts of talk of school closures, and nobody's sure how much ECS money they're getting from the state. But, um, you know, it's not that a lot of people are bringing up Russia or Anthony Scaramucci to me as I'm walking. People are talking about the same things that they're that they're always talking about. And, you know, in a way, that's really refreshing because, you know, in my job, you can't often get distracted by whatever is the you know news of the day um, you know coming out of the White House and it's a reminder to take a, a little bit of that with a grain of salt and remember that there are just some bread and butter stuff that matter to people's pocketbooks uh, and to their quality of life that um, are actually what they want you to probably be spending most of your time working on. Right. A reminder that Tip O'Neill was right. All politics is or are local. Um, but to that point, I mean, a lot of the things that you just mentioned are not necessarily things that are particularly amenable to federal solutions. Those are things that often start on the municipal level and track back up to the state level. How much does the U.S. Senator, how much influence do you have over those concerns? Yeah, you're right. I mean, we're not micromanaging 
issues like local education from Washington, at least anymore, after we repealed No Child Left Behind. But the policies we're talking about would have a huge impact uh, on state and local decisions. If we uh, are ever to pass the Republican health care bill, which includes uh, $800 billion worth of cuts uh, to Medicaid, um, which come on top of another $600 billion in Medicaid cuts that are proposed in the president's budget, that would have a trickle-down effect that would end in the closure of schools and the curtailment of local resources and programming. So, yeah, there, we are one step removed from a lot of the things that people talk to me about when I'm walking across the state. But what we're working on in Washington has an impact on those local programs. As you probably know, President Trump uh, just made a brief statement uh, from the White House. Um, he began by talking about the economy and how great the economy is doing these days and then pivoted uh, over to Charlottesville and uh, enlarged upon or I think probably improved upon uh, his remarks from Saturday about uh, Charlottesville. Well, let me take the first part first. As you're talking to people at, here at the beginning of this walk, um, do they feel as though the economy is booming right now? No, people see the top-line numbers, uh, uh, jobs being created, GDP slowly growing, and they don't feel like it has any translation to their life. I mean, out here in eastern Connecticut, people feel like their wages have largely been flat and that uh, their expenses are slowly overwhelming the money that's coming in the door. So um, I, I, don't, I think there's, there's some optimism out here uh, because of the new jobs that are coming in through Electric Boat and Pratt & Whitney. People are feeling some of that trickle down, at least of hope. Um, but their bottom lines aren't uh, a lot better than they were a few years ago. So, no, I think by and large, people out here don't buy the argument that the economy is in a fundamentally different place than it was a few years ago. Their lives aren't fundamentally different. Let's talk a little bit about Charlottesville. I think for a lot of us, I mean, so many things happened all at once. The notion that this was happening at all was followed by these vivid and disconcerting images of people with KKK paraphernalia and Nazi flags and, and kind of a lot of them. And, and I, I don't know, we're, you probably have more intelligence about this than than most of us do. But I mean, were you surprised that there are that many people willing to go to Charlottesville and make that kind of display? I, I wasn't surprised in the sense that um, you know, racism never went away. Um, it was always there. It wasn't given permission to um, be uh, expressed out in the open. Um, but, you know, I certainly you know, have a sense that uh, that has been quiet and latent for a long time. Um, but, you know, I think it's really important to look at what happened over the last eight years. Um, racism, in some ways, became legitimized. It got folded into legitimate political opposition to President Obama. There's no way to explain some of the ferocity of opposition to him other than uh, people who had not been politically active prior to his administration became politically active, and their interest in political action came from fringe, intolerant views. Uh, once President Obama was out of office, th their political action didn't have anywhere legitimate to go. Uh, and I think Charlottesville is um, a, a leak out of all of these folks who had been channeling their political action into the Tea Party or into anti-Obama action who now needed some other place to express it. And it couldn't come in a legitimate political form because their guy was now in the White House. 
it seems as though this is uh, at least planned as the first of many now that when we're now reading about maybe something in Texas pretty soon, but maybe other things popping up around the country. In a way, they got some of what they wanted, right? They got on camera. Uh, they turned into a news story. Um, so how do you, I don't know, how do you put the cork back in that bottle? Well, I, I just think that you at a we at a local level uh, have to engage in some prophylactic behavior. We had a series of vigils and rallies all around the state yesterday, you know, that made it clear that this is a state that is going to um, very vigorously condemn any of that hate speech if it happens. Uh, and so, I don't think you sit around waiting for it to happen in your community. You go out and do like what they did in Willimannock. They gathered hundreds of people on the town green to support diversity and inclusion and make it clear that they were going to call out anybody that was engaged in the kind of behavior in Charlottesville. I don't think that's a guarantee that it won't happen again, uh, because I think there is a a natural phenomenon happening now where anti-Obama activation is now uh, needing to be channeled somewhere else. But I think what we're doing in Connecticut is, is uh, probably smart a path as you can chart right now. You know, uh, you've been writing, uh, we're jumping around here because uh, Chris Murphy has to get back on the road in order to, to meet his goals here for the day. Uh, so we're jumping around a bit. There's sort of a weird way and there's there's a weird parallel to North, Car- to North Korea in the sense that if you push back, you sometimes give your opponent what, the, what your opponent wants. If you don't push back, that's also a mistake. So uh, you've written about the North Korean situation right now. Um, tell me basically how you're evaluating the status of of President Trump's response to North Korea? Well, he's failed. Uh, He's failed because his language has been wholly and completely over the top. You don't need to use the terminology that he has to make it clear to the North Koreans that we have the military capability to engage in a disproportionate response if they were ever to launch a nuclear weapon or if they were ever to launch an attack against the U.S. or our allies. But he's failed more so because he has absolutely no diplomatic counterpoint to the tough talk. Um, He has no ambassador on the Korean Peninsula. He has no undersecretary of state for Asia. He has no one close to him who has experience uh, working issues uh, like this. And I think there's a low likelihood in the short term there is a political or diplomatic path out of this. I think Kim Jong-un has made the decision for the time being that he wants a nuclear weapon and he wants to mount it to an ICBM in order to protect himself and his regime. But if there is any way to convince him otherwise, Trump simply doesn't have the personnel that can get that done. So he's got to tone down the tough talk because it is playing into Kim Jong-un's hands. Um, and he's got to put together some kind of diplomatic or political strategy that may have a low likelihood of success, but, um, you know, right now there's not a lot of other options. Right. He was kind of joking yesterday uh, or a couple of days ago about how Putin's move to expel uh, diplomatic staff cuts down on the payroll. But the reality is there are still, I think, thousands of jobs going begging. And a lot of these jobs are the people who game out all the different possibilities. What if China does this? How, how would would North Korea respond to that? Right. These are all the what could go wrong people. And, and they, they're not there right now. They're not there right now. And I mean, this is unprecedented in that we have um, our first U.S. president with no government experience who hired a secretary of state who has no diplomatic experience, who hired a deputy secretary of state who has no diplomatic experience, who hasn't who hasn't filled any of the other positions in the State Department. I mean, there's this weird 
purposeful, intentional effort on behalf of the Trump administration to gut the State Department. Um, I still can't figure out what the motivation for it is, but it isn't by accident any longer. And by putting generals uh, next to him in all of these national security meetings, um, he simply isn't getting advice from anybody that has found a meaningful non-military solution to any big vexing problem around the world. Madison McMaster, they're all smart guys, um, but uh, diplomacy is different uh, than military engagement, and that really worries me. All right, we've just got a couple of minutes left because you have, you have to get where by the end of the day? Where are you pointed towards? By the end of today, I'm going to be at Camp Ingersoll in uh, Portland, Connecticut. I'm holding an outdoor town hall at about 6.30 tonight. And uh, I, I just I get way behind uh, on these days because I stop so many times. I have so many people join me to walk with me that I'm always rushing to get to my final town hall of the day. But that's where I'll be at 6.30. Right. And so you're, you're wearing a Fitbit. I read 50,000 steps yesterday. 50,000 steps uh, yesterday. I'm talking to you. So I, let's see. Let's see if I can find how many steps. 26,000 steps so far today. Uh, last year, I gained weight on this walk implausibly because as much as I'm walking, I'm also eating my way through Connecticut. Right. So we'll see if uh, the same thing holds true this year. Don't feed the senator. There's like signs up uh, saying that now. Um, <laughs> the uh, It is. I wear a Fitbit. I've never had 26,000. It actually is pretty impressive. Um, and, and so uh, any walking tips you figured out, like if people want to try to walk long distances, what have you learned from all this? Uh, so I have learned that you need to take care of your feet. So I wrap my feet twice a day uh, with gauze and moleskin, uh, and I unwrap it halfway through the day and wrap them again. So I figure if I just like if I if I send the message to my feet that I deeply care about them and I treat them very nicely, that maybe they won't revolt on me. And so far, it's working. All right. And I just one other personal thing to tell you. I know that on Twitter, you've been uh, somewhat uh, annoyed is probably not the right word. You're tired of hearing Red Sox announcers talk about how improbably Craig Kimbrell's fastball rises or seems it to rise. It doesn't rise. It doesn't rise. It doesn't rise. No, Wade Box explained this the other night. He says it's because it's flat so much longer than an ordinary fastball that it looks like it's rising. So you're anticipating the fact that it's going to be right, that it's going to dip and it's going so fast that it actually stays straight and it looks like it's going up. I understand. But, you know, it's like every Nesson broadcast. We talk about this. <laughs> All right. Well, go Red Sox uh, and go Chris Murphy. And thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. All right. So that's Chris Murphy. And uh, if you do have a Chris Murphy song that you would like to send us, it has to be about his walking, though. I mean, it has to have something to do with the walking. And I think it does have to mention blister prevention. Uh, but if you want to do that, don't send it to me, please. I'm delegating Kion Wolf, cwolf at wnpr.org. Please send the SoundCloud, SoundCloud link or whatever to that address. Chris Murphy, yeah, what a wonderful man. Chris Murphy, yeah, 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 yeah. And this is the scramble. Welcome back. So uh, let me. T- I, I sort of rushed into things because Chris Murphy's time was limited. Now let me tell you how the rest of the show will unfold. We're about to do a segment involving food and restaurants, uh, and then at the end we've left some time, as we sometimes try to do on Mondays, for your phone calls. So uh, if you want to call. 
860-275-7266. Not now, uh, but as we begin to wrap up this second segment, 860-275-7266. I'm assuming people do have things that they want to get off their chests about the events of this weekend and the presidential response to Sam. Uh, and I'm certainly here to do that with you. So, Or, or if there's other things you want to undertake, I'm, I'm open-minded. 860-275-7266. But before we get to that, uh, we are going to talk to Tom Sietzema, food critic for the Washington Post. Uh, wrote a fascinating uh, article this weekend, uh, at least that I read this weekend, um, amid all the clamor and unhappiness uh, of Charlottesville. It was very interesting to read about something else and something so well-considered as what uh, Tom Tom wrote about. So first of all, Tom Sietzema, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a treat to be here. So just to set up this article, you had talked to a lot of top-line chefs and restaurateurs, the Anthony Bourdain's, the Thomas Keller's, uh, the Daniel Baloud's, people like that, people who are well-known names. And all of them were saying that a certain aspect of the restaurant business, of a restaurant, is in a way that I think most people wouldn't guess, kind of the spine and central nervous system of the restaurant, kind of a sine qua known, if you don't get this part right, nothing else is going to work in your restaurant. This is the bedrock on which you you build the church of your restaurant. Um, and what and what what did it turn out to be? Those would be dishwashers, dishwashers, uh, the, the the lowest people, often on the totem pole and the least well paid in the kitchen, turn out to be some of the most important cogs in the machinery of a restaurant. And by the way, all those people that you listed too started out as uh, dishwashers. Um, Thomas Keller started out here in, in Laurel, Maryland, um, and, and others started out in other places. But what they all told me was that um, it sort of helped them along the way, that, that what they did when they were washing dishes sort of helped them in their jobs as chefs. And Tony Bourdain actually told me that um, it helped him make every major decision um, in his life. Every twist and turn in his life was, was aided and abetted by the fact that he had washed dishes. And I think it, it, part of it is this mindless activity. It's like dirty things go in, clean things come out, and you have to know about efficiency. You understand the joys and rituals of repetition and tradition and teamwork and all of that. It's really hard work. I actually spent a shift um, at a Houston restaurant. I didn't want to do it in my own territory, of course. I went down to Houston to uh, uh, Caracol, which is a very good Mexican restaurant, whose chef became a dishwasher. It was his first job in this country after he uh, left, fled Mexico, actually. And I wanted an, uh, like an immigrant chef with a good restaurant to, uh, you know, to sort of coach me in the way of washing dishes. And it turns out, boy, you know, I'd been a waiter before, but it is hard work. It is backbreaking. It is it is mindless, but it's um, it goes on and on and on. And you have to know everyone else's job in the kitchen, too. You know, you have to know where the pots and pans go. You have to pitch in when, say, the dessert chef or the salad cook uh, gets in the weeds, as we call it, gets really busy. Um, and and I, I, I have such admiration for these people, most of whom are immigrants. Um, I, I didn't see too many uh you know, um, American-born um, people working in the kitchens that I uh, spent time in or uh, with uh, dishwashers that I talked to. That was, that was interesting for me. 
Um, I want to talk more about your specific experience doing this, but I want to go back to the thing that you said about Bourdain because um, I had a chance to work with him once, and he's a very practically-minded person for all of his Mm -hmm. food romanticism. And I liked what he said in your article, too. It's kind of like what Jerry Seinfeld says about stand-up comedy, which is that people can't lie to you about stand-up comedy. They can tell you that the B-movie was really good or that some other thing that you did was fine, but people either laugh or they don't. And Bourdain said to you, look, you're either keeping up with the worker or not. The dishes are either coming out clean or they're not, right? That there's right. a way in which, you know, you could tell Daniel Balud how terrific the, the duck a l'orange was tonight and you might be telling the truth and you might be lying, but you can't lie about the dishes. You, you, you sure can't. And what's also interesting there is that, you know, if you don't have a good dishwasher, everyone is miserable, Balud told me, you know, and Thomas Keller said, look, um, if, if we don't have someone setting tables of silverware, um, people aren't going to be eating. If we don't have clean glasses, cocktails and drinks won't get served. If we don't have clean pots and pans, nothing is going to get cooked. It is so important uh, to, you know, the role that dishwashers play. And what was really interesting, too, um, why dishwashers? Why now? Well, there are several little things. You know, uh, Thomas Keller's restaurant, the French Laundry, um, up in Napa Valley, uh, recently awarded its highest honor um, internal prize to a dishwasher, someone who had never missed a day for uh, you know seven year shift or seven year uh, stint. And um, Rene Redzepi, the acclaimed Noma in Copenhagen, recently made his longtime dishwasher a partner in his enterprise, which is huge news. I mean, he must be the most famous dishwasher in the world. Um, but, but he worked hard. He was there in the beginning of the restaurant, and Rene Redzepi wanted to award him. And I just thought, you know, we, we, we spend so much time talking about the wonderful chefs and sommeliers and pastry chefs and on and on. Um, But what about the people in the back of the house? What about the people who are actually making all of their work possible? Well, in addition to that, I mean, first of all, you mentioned uh, somebody who incorporated a dish that uh, one of the dishwashers had made for the kind of family style. Everybody who works at the restaurant uh, meal, uh, it went up on the menu. I thought that was interesting. And then also the notion that um, I forget whose new restaurant it is you were talking about. There was somebody designing a new floor plan for back of the house. Making, oh, yeah, that was yeah. Emerald Lagasse in New Orleans, his latest restaurant in New Orleans. Um, was designed with the dishwashers in mind. So there's a storage unit. They don't have to travel all the way through the kitchen to get places. And it's roomier and lighter and more spacious. You know, when I, w- I was a dishwasher, there were three or four of us in, in one station. And it's hot and it's cramped and there's sharp knives and hot glass and hot pans. And, you know, um, you really have to be a bit of a ballet dancer to get in and out and maneuver uh, behind the scenes there. Um, it surprised me. So you mentioned the the guy who's now a partner and probably therefore the most famous dishwasher in the world. It didn't seem, based on your narrative, that you are destined for that kind of dishwashing greatness. Um, your description of your own travails there sounded a little <laughs> bit more like a Three Stooges movie or something, right? You, were, well, you know what? You, you know, I caught on after a couple of shifts. You know, this uh, this rubber hose that I was dealing with had sort of a mind of its own. Every time I set it down, it would like squirt a waiter or a waitress or myself or whatever. You know, you, you certainly get the hang of it after a while. I just did it for an eight-hour shift. That was enough for me. I'm certainly glad to be on the other side of the restaurant, sitting down, ordering off a menu. But I have great appreciation for the men and women who work so hard to make all that happen. 
Well, it's also, I mean, I, one of the mistakes that most of us would pr- probably assume is one dirty dish or platter equals another dirty dish or platter. Didn't you find out that things with habaneros on them are not the same oh, as the Oh, yeah. Thing? Well, this was really interesting. You know, what you thought would be hot wasn't hot. What you th- thought would be cool wouldn't be cool. Um, certain things I, I came to hate. I was working in a Mexican restaurant. I hate black bean stick, eggs stick. Um, they serve caracol, means snail in Spanish, and they serve their guacamole in these snail shaped vessels. And I was trying to blast that out. You know, it's re- really hard to get this guacamole out- outside of all the ridges and everything. It was, every dish was a little different. Every um, system was a little different. Um, but I did find at the end of the shift, I sort of knew where everything went and, and how things were supposed to work. It is hard work, though. I was beat. Right. I was ready to be put through the dishwasher myself at the end of the shift. <laughs> well, you've got things on you in some circumstances. I think you also, did you get a pot stuck in some dishwasher or something? I, 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 miss, uh, I didn't put the uh, uh, cutting board on a rack, and everything has to go on the rack. So I, got, I jammed up the system there for about 30 seconds. And I think the incident that you were referring to earlier, uh, somebody threw a board of, um, they had just cut some hot chilies on their habaneros and, and uh, serrano chilies. And it was orange, and I just hosed it off with my my uh, rubber hose and um what happens when hot water meets habanero oil is it creates tear gas and so like for a moment there everyone around me the dishwashers the waiters on the other side me we were all like crying for a little bit because uh you know you just don't know these things until you do them um, you were working with uh, two other gentlemen whose I was. full-time job this is um first of all were they patient with you as rookie Oh, they were great. They, they were both from Guatemala. Um, and um, what amazed me, they, they were quite a bit shorter than I was, and but they were hoisting this really heavy equipment, these 40-quart, you know, mixing bowls and everything, um, as if they were, you know, paper bags. I was, I was really impressed with both that and the fact that they never really stopped. You know, they were always looking for other things to do. And this is so important. You know, this is a way for for immigrants in particular, uh, you know, to, to access the uh, the hospitality industry. You know, you're good at dishwashing, you get promoted to uh, prep prepping vegetables. You know, you're good there. You, you might move on to making salads or butchering or, you know, it's just a matter of seeing and observing and always saying yes when people ask for volunteers in a kitchen. You know, it raises the question, I mean, just to go back to the concept with which we opened this conversation, this notion that really if the dishwashers aren't doing a great job, nobody else is happy. Um, You know, with that in mind, I mean, I don't really know, like when I tip at a restaurant, I'm usually tipping the people who took care of me, the people that I can actually see. These are people who are taking care of me that I can't see. Exactly. Does this argue, I don't don't even know how it works or how many restaurants there are where they divide up the tips or, or whatever, but it's sort of, I'm suddenly thinking, well, probably it's not fair if they're not getting some of that. That is an excellent question. And you know, Restaurants vary from place to place. You know, everyone's, uh, you know, some places pool tips and they all share in it. You know, bartenders get a cut and busboys get a cut. Um, I've never seen or heard of dishwashers getting a cut, um, which is a question I should have asked, but I, I but, but I didn't. And I didn't see anything back there that indicated they were getting tipped. But um, the, the, most of the dishwashers here in the Washington area that I interviewed make from between 10 and $14 an hour uh, down down in, in um, Houston, I was working at that uh, good carousel. They were making about ten, um, so they're not making a ton of money. And I really advocate, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, in pooling tips. 
having been a former waiter because I think it makes everyone work a little bit harder. It also, um, you know, um, shows appreciation for people who might not normally be in that, um, in, a, in a place where they might get tipped. Right. It's a great point. Well, Tom Sietzema, everybody should read this article. We haven't even uh, covered all of it by any means. Food critic for The Washington Post spent some time as a dishwasher and wrote in celebration of the work they do. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. So let me tell you what's going to happen now. And we're going to have a lot of time for this, too. More t- Typically what happens on this show. <laughs> on this show is that I announce we're going to have time for phone calls and then I get all caught up in conversations and it just it's like there's four minutes or something at the end and people get annoyed and I don't blame them. But today, today it's going to be very different. And so don't hold back, by the way. Like, don't wait until the last 10 minutes or something. That's That wouldn't be a good idea. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be hearing like little monologues from me for way longer than you want to. Uh, so uh, you can start calling now. If you want to talk about Charlottesville, if you want to talk about any aspect of what's been going on in the news over the last three or four days. Uh, Now's a great time to call. 860-275-7266. That's the number. You can also tweet at us at at WNPR. Colin, I probably don't give that that address anywhere near often enough. So uh, when we come back, uh, call Or you pick the call now. Get on the board. Be the first person. 860-275-7266. I have some things that I'll be bringing up after this break. a situation where the time-tested technique of leaving stuff in the sink just to see if the other person's going to wash it probably won't work. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish has offered to swim across Connecticut with Chris Murphy. Tim Cohn is our excellent intern, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Emerald Agassi. Bam! On tomorrow's show, we revisit our conversation about the perils of political stress, and coming up Wednesday, you want to talk about stress, our salute to Guam. And now... Back to Colin. That's right. Tomorrow's show is a show actually that we worked on last April uh, about what the stress of the current political environment is doing to people. We'll, you'll hear at least one hair-raising story of someone who almost lost his life uh, in something connected to that, uh, as well as a lot of people calling in with various uh, other stories left on our uh, special voicemail we set up. And then, yeah, on Wednesday we will be back with um, a live, well, mostly live um, show uh, we're going to have to pre-tape some things because it turns out there's a 14-hour time difference with Guam, which we had not factored for. But we're going to do a salute to our friends and neighbors and fellow citizens of Guam. Um, and so that's uh, the next couple of days. So uh, we're but we're getting a bunch of phone calls here. I'm going to get to all of them. Uh, I have time for once. And I also want to say, so over the weekend, um, all this stuff is happening. And I just have to recount this one exchange that I had. So I'm on social media a lot. And... Um, there's a guy, I think it's a guy, I don't know, he's got sort of got a handle on Twitter who often tweets at me from a fairly conservative, if not fully Trump-affirming point of view. And he at one point tweeted, because as you know, as we go into this, just to set this up for those of you who somehow or other slept through the whole thing, uh, after the events in Charlottesville, uh, President Trump said something to the effect that, you know, this was a problem. This was a problem uh, on many sides, many sides. He used that phrase twice as if to suggest that 
there was any kind of multiple um, way of looking at the responsibility for all this when it seems as though the problems of Charlottesville this weekend begin and end with um, the arrival of people with KKK regalia and Nazi flags and other slogans of white supremacy. Yes, there may have been some violent pushback from people who showed up to meet violence with violence, but none of that would have happened without these people. Anyway, this guy gets on Twitter and he says, well, no, I actually think the president's right about this with a mini sides thing. Um, and I just sort of wrote back, well, I mean, you probably felt that same way about the Nuremberg rallies, right? How come people aren't mentioning the other side? And he came back at me with, you know, that's just the go-to def- you know, default taunt of the left is to call somebody a Nazi. And I said, well, yeah, you're kind of right about that, but these are Nazis. <laughs> these are actual Nazis. It's not wrong to call them Nazis not wrong to compare what they're doing in Charlottesville to the Nuremberg rallies. It's actually okay this time to say, these people are a bunch of Nazis because they are. Anyway, at least a lot of them were. Anyway, I want we want to talk to you. But before we talk to you, let me, we'll bring you up to date. President Trump did um, give um, a brief set of remarks a little after 1230 today. Um, he spoke about how the economy is flourishing uh, and uh, spoke in the somewhat self-congratulatory way that he does speak about such things and then pivoted to what was obviously the real reason for this um, statement. And he didn't he talked much more firmly, I guess, um, and unwaveringly uh, about the the wrongs committed and the wrongness uh, of white supremacy uh, and its various adherents uh, in Charlottesville. We'll hear a little bit of what that sounded like. Racism is evil. And those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. Well, that's all true. It probably took a little longer to get there than it should have. Um, All right. So we're going to take some um, phone calls here. 860-275-7266. We got a lot of people online. But let's just uh, grab grab a couple of people who actually did want to react to that last interview. And then we we can move on to Charlottesville and Trump in a second. But here's uh, Dan in Mystic. Hi, Dan. Uh, Hi, Colin McEnroe. Yes. Uh, Yeah. uh, First of all, I've washed dishes for 15 years in Greasy Spoons and in, you know, four-star restaurants on night shifts to be an artist during the daytime. And it is possible to, to, to have a life and be a human being. The, uh, in that, I, I managed to read a book called Science and Sanity by Korzybski on my slow moments, and I figured out that human beings, if, if anything's going to save the human race from itself, it's it's some kind of doctrine that helps people deal with the fact that they're alone inside their skins, and then from there you get into organizations and society. <clears throat> uh, it's this the, the white supremacy thing in 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 recently. Uh, your organization always involves asymmetry of power, and so if if you're not going to have the stupid kinds of organizations based on you know skin color and stuff. You know how do you deal with with the asymmetry of power that goes with any kind of organizing, which leads to some kind of supremacy? Well, you know, is there any kind of good supremacy out there? That's a really interesting question. Um, because, well, I, I, you know, you're just going to let that one hang in the air, right? Other people want yeah. to try to answer that. 
Uh, well, I, I, anyway, yeah, I guess it was rhetorical and kind of wordy. But no, yeah. no, I, I, I kind of like it. I mean, look, uh, life is hierarchical. I mean, but I think we can. I, I think it is uh, possible. I'll try off the cuff. Let me see how I do with this. I'll try off the cuff. I mean, obviously, life is hierarchical. Hier- hierarchy and supremacy, I think, are two different things, right? Um, life sorts itself out in certain kinds, some kinds of hierarchies. People um, choose leaders or have leaders choose, chosen for them, depending on what kind of system of government uh, you're in, where you're living. Uh, those are done for all kinds of different reasons. But I bet you we can rank, if we were philosophers, we could rank in order of virtue the kinds of reasons for assigning either power, hegemony, um, uh, exalted status uh, to anybody. And obviously, um, things connected to birthright are usually the lowest on that list, right? Uh, how, what, how you were born, where you were born, merit that you've done nothing to earn, uh, which I guess is not merit at all. Uh, those are the things that we should distrust. So yes, skin color, ethnicity, stuff like that, that should have nothing to do with your place in society. Um, if we had time to like really be Greek philosophers and walk around the Lyceum, we could have a pretty interesting conversation about this. Because there maybe are things that should have something to do with whether, you know, supremacy isn't really the right word, but with whether you have a more prominent role or a leadership role. We're not going to create a utopian society where everybody exists on this flat plane. That just isn't going to happen. So uh, he's, I don't know. That's an interesting thing to think about. I'll think about that off and on for the rest of the day, and then I'll get back to you. Uh, here's Antonio in New Haven. Hi, Antonio. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. How, how are you? Good. I love your show, first off. Um, second, the things that's going down in, in North Charlotte, um, I I really don't see how they like the KKK and all of them could just go down there and rally and do all this stuff. Like I know um, a couple of weeks ago they were out in New Haven, and I I wasn't quite sure, but I know they didn't cause as much of a ruckus as they did um down there. But how are they traveling from from state to state and doing this? And and uh, and you know why is this acceptable? Well, there's a difference between legal and acceptable. So the First Amendment does make room for quite a bit of this kind of thing. We lived in a different kind of country. For example, if we lived in Germany, where a lot of the symbols of the Nazi era are um, outlawed, um, there are a lot of European democracies that have greater strictures on what you can say, what constitutes destructive speech or hate speech or whatever you want to call it. We tend to have a pretty open frontier here. I mean, the, the circumstances under which we are willing under our constitution to limit speech are it's a pretty narrow list and so now, yeah they now, get they I get to do this that. stuff but but I can't go to my job or I can't go out in certain places and start saying things it's freedom of speech but there's certain things that I feel that I wouldn't get away with saying you know and I'm a Hispanic male I'm young I'm 31 years old but I don't feel like I could just go out in the streets and just start saying hey you know this this and that but they could just go out there with, with especially armed and everything with and and that's crazy. I feel I, I would have felt scared. I would have felt very. I would have felt threatened. Right. This is America, and it's crazy. And I have a six-year-old daughter, and I'm afraid to raise my child like that. I do not blame you for uh, having those kinds of feelings, uh, Antonio. And you make good points. But yeah, and it is very weird to watch those kind of quasi-militia groups march in there, and they're you know armed to the teeth, and and that's alarming too. Some people would argue, well, that's another aspect of constitutional protection. But yeah, it, it you know, I mean, the thing to remember is the First Amendment only applies to the government's um, 
inability to interfere with speech, right? I mean, uh, you're, you can get fired from your job for saying stuff, and the First Amendment will not protect you. The First Amendment only protects you from the government. It doesn't protect you from being fired from your job. It doesn't protect you from being screamed at by somebody else who you, whom you've irritated. Um, the First Amendment doesn't protect you from getting punched in the face for what you say. There are other laws that may protect you from getting punched in the face, but it's not the First Amendment. It's not freedom of speech. That's not what that is. So um, it's always, you know, we tend to forget. We tend to think the First Amendment just applies to anybody's right to say anything under any circumstances. Well, it only protects you from the government in those circumstances. All right. So um, we're going to take some more phone calls. Uh, We can jump over to Peter, a regular caller to this station, Peter in Stanford. Hi. Hi. Um, well, I'm sorry. I was going to say the state of Connecticut's a mess. The nation's a mess. I'm going to come out and say it. Colin McEnroe, 2020. No, you don't um, wish that on this with, country. Uh, <laughs> unless with, you're an eye doctor. Unless you're an eye doctor, I don't want to talk about 2020. Okay. No, my, my comment is that uh, it took Trump uh, 48 hours to mention these, these groups, the KKK, the, the Nazis, national, uh, the uh, you know, white supremacy. And he was cajoled by the, uh, you know, the moderates, by, his, you know, Ivanka. He was controlled by certain members of his staff. What, what, what do you think that, what does he think presidency is for him, an internship? Uh, he, he, he um, and no wonder why people think he's one of them, because he was, uh, you know, he had to be, I don't know, tutored about uh, white supremacy or the alt-right, or maybe Bannon was, uh, you know, uh, in the way of this. Uh, but um, that's why, you know, people... Um, you know, don't trust him because he, he almost didn't. He almost didn't mention uh, these, you know, these, uh, these uh, you know, fascist and groups because you call them a fascist and you're right. You know, they uh, they, they, they call themselves that. It's not a taunt to call them Nazis when they're standing. You Nazis! So, first of all, let me just say thanks for your call, Peter. I'll say something about that in just a second. Second of all, uh, some lines are opening up here if you want to call in and join the conversation. We've got about a little less than 10 minutes left, so we can certainly get to you. 860-275-7266. I don't get to do this anywhere near often enough. 860-275-7266. I'm going to get to Lynn uh, in, in just a second and do Martin in just a second. But I just want to respond to Peter for a second and say also that, you know, his President Trump's state of mind on an issue like this one is something that I find very diff- difficult to fathom. And we can impute all kinds of things to him. But the that question of why he couldn't say what needed to be said on Saturday, as many people have pointed up, pointed out, denouncing Nazis is a layup. It's like really easy. <laughs> You know, most people find that a very easy thing to do. Denouncing the KKK, denouncing fascists and crypto fascists and quasi fascists, very easy. White supremacists, very easy to say, you know, bad, bad white supremacists. So, why did he find it so hard? And here's my answer take it for what it's worth, but it's based on a long life of dealing with problematic people. When people don't know what they believe, when they don't have a real core value system, like the core value system that allows you to take a new variable and match it up against your core value system, and then you go, oh, yeah, so that's what I would think about this. I've never thought about this particular subject before, but my core value system tells me what I would think about that, right? So if you don't have that, or if it's very, very underdeveloped, 
which I think is the case with Donald Trump, you often don't really know what you think about something. And you don't know whether something is maybe a little bit more morally or ethically complicated than it seems to you at the beginning. You also tend to worry about who you're answerable to, right? Like if I said this, or, you know, and I didn't say that, who who would get mad at me? And I think that's a problem for him. He he doesn't really know what he believes about anything. So he looks at something like that and he, he defaults to something like, well, this is a problem with many sides or it's caused by many sides. He says many sides. And he thinks, well, I'm probably safe there, right? Because I said many sides. I didn't take a particular side. Um, and obviously many sides is exactly exactly the wrong thing to say when you're talking about Nazis. There aren't many sides to that issue. So anyway, take it for what it's worth. That's my belief. He doesn't have a set of core beliefs which to, onto which he can map new issues. When he runs into a variable, he doesn't know what he thinks about it. So he, he just jabbers the way I'm doing right now. All right. So 860-275-7266. A lot of people calling in. Some people want to talk about dishwashing. Some people want to talk uh, about uh, Donald Trump. Some people want to talk about immigrants, which might be the kind of common thread between those issues. Here's Martin from Mansfield. Hi, Martin. You're on the air. Hello, Colin. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I would actually like to talk about Donald Trump washing dishes. Okay, that's good. That's that's a through line. That's just uh, kind of a joke, but actually that is part of the problem, that this is a man who has never actually had a real job, and he does not understand what a real job is. And that food writer who decided to work alongside the Guatemalans and find out just how hard it is, that is someone that understood how hard it is to work a real job. I worked in many, many restaurants to work my way through college. I started as a dishwasher and worked my way up and actually became sort of a good cook. And, and, you know, people work so hard in that industry, and we expect so much from them, and we pay them so little. Now, I, I did work in one restaurant where all the tips were pooled, and it was distributed amongst everybody, including mm-hmm. the dishwashers. And it was great to me as a cook because I got a few extra dollars. The waitresses weren't too happy with it because they had to give me a few extra dollars. But really, why do we even have this system in the first place? Right. Why do we not pay these people a living wage? We're one of, we are an advanced society. We are probably the only one who really expects these people to beg for their wage. Right. No, and we've done we've done entire shows about tipping, and I think Lucy uh, and where we live just did a show about tipping as well. It is it's a fascinating topic. Maybe one we can't go all the way uh, into right now. I will quickly say Ben Sass, who's kind of the Chris Murphy of the Republican side in a lot of ways, um, and he's a guy who's I, I would I don't think Ben Sass and I would agree on three out of ten major issues, but there's something intrinsically likable uh, about him, like on a non-issue basis, and he does that thing where. Uh, what when while Chris is walking across the state, something that Ben Sass may be doing because he's done it in the past. He goes and he does other people's jobs just to see what they're like. He's from Nebraska, right? Uh, wherever it is that he's from, he, he goes and he does their jobs, often blue collar jobs, just to see what those jobs are like. It's a good thing for a lot of politicians to do. They should also try living without their gold plated congressional health insurance and see how that goes too before they take other people's health insurance away. Here's Lynn from East Hartford. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for your patience. Hi, thank you. Hey, listen, um, I work in the field of mental health care with children, 
and I am a foster parent for many years through the state of Connecticut. Uh, and my family, we have been touched in our life by many, many immigrants, um, many with papers and many without papers. Um, so my question is, I have protested down in front of uh, the federal building, um, but what I, I'm wondering is what is it that we really do to get a concrete movement going here to protect immigrants, they, they are contributing to our society, and they are us. This is what we were 100 years ago, 150, 200 years ago. Um, so I'm wondering if uh, you have input on that. Yeah, no, I wish I had a magic wand to create that movement, but we've talked a lot on the show about things like there actually are now underground railroads uh, that are being run mostly by churches. Um, for immigrants who face danger of deportation. I think what you see now is an incredible grassroots movement that that embraces a, a range of issues, including the one that you're talking about right now. I think that's already happening. Now, it can't fix everything. Uh, it can't override ICE, you know, but, um, but I think we see a start. So we're going to get a different kind of voice here on the air. Here's Mike in Waterbury. Hi, Mike. You're on the air. Hi there, Colin. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, basically, my question is, you hear a lot, I want to be, let it be known, I am in no way a white supremacist or anything like that, but you hear a lot about these Antifa people, and in my opinion, everything I've heard about them, they're nothing but they're domestic terrorists. All right, so they're just to... Violently to... shutting, the, violently stopping anyone who opposes them. Right. So um, just to help people understand, because maybe this hasn't been covered as much, Antifa is short for anti-fascist. This does seem to be a meet violence with violence movement. It's hard from the press coverage so far to know how widespread it is. Uh, But to whatever extent it's widespread, I would agree that it's, you know, it's not going to solve this problem. It's going to make the problem worse. The people doing it are stupid. I mean, they wouldn't exist, obviously, uh, if fascism and crypto fascist and neo fascist movements weren't rampant in this country right now. That's why they have something to do. I don't know what they'd be doing if if those circumstances did not prevail at the moment. But that doesn't justify it. It's, that's not how we're going to solve this problem. So so yeah, and that may be one of the things that Trump was kind of reaching for on Saturday when he very ineptly uh, tried to invoke the, the notion of many sides. But I'm not aware of anti-fascist demonstrations or violence in situations where there is no display of fascism. I mean, so far anyway, I think mostly it's come up in situations like Charlottesville, where, you know, which is not, I don't justify it, but I'm also not aware of it happening except in situations where they feel that there's some kind of threat that they need to countermand or answer. But it's not a good thing. Uh, it's, it's not the right thing. It's not Dr. King's thing, and it's not the way out of this mess we're in. Thanks so much for calling. This was really fun. Uh, I had fun talking to you. I hope you had fun talking to me. We'll be back on Tuesday with stress, like you don't already have some.